1: the show that takes you inside the provocative and stimulating world of design and branding as it intersects with contemporary culture. Here's your host of Design Matters, Debbie Millman.
2: Today is my 14th anniversary working at Sterling Brands. A lot has changed since my first day on the job, but one consistent thread has been my fascination with the mysterious connection that exists between consumers and the brands they buy. I love that the discipline of design I work on requires understanding those consumers, those people, and includes analyzing how they think and how they choose the brands they buy. Most of all, I am captivated by the science of how they see and how the brands they choose to signal their affiliations or define their beliefs about who they are and what they want to project to the world. One of my favorite places to frequent is the supermarket. I love going down the aisles and seeing all the things we've lived with all our lives, seeing the new things, seeing what people place in their shopping carts. I wonder why they buy the things they buy, and I speculate whether it is habit or taste or price or trust or safety or security. Inasmuch as I find this endlessly interesting... It has become harder to speak of my passion without considering how much of this work may contribute to the increasing carbon footprint of our planet. I question how much of what I work on is necessary, and I find myself asking my clients exactly why they need to redesign their brands and what specifically they hope to accomplish. Nevertheless, I still get a thrill when I see something in the marketplace that I have worked on. And whenever I see a package that I have helped create get redesigned by someone else, I can't help but feel jealous and defensive and a little bit disappointed. This was most apparent in the recent redesign of Tropicana Orange Juice. I worked on the previous design, the one that featured the red and white striped straw in the orange. As everyone in the design business now knows, after several weeks of intense consumer dissatisfaction and endless Twitter and Facebook protests about the new packaging, Tropicana decided to abandon the dramatic new look and go back to the original design that consumers seemed to have such an affinity for. I was shocked by the onslaught of resentment towards the new design, and though I was pleased that our package would once again grace the supermarket, I couldn't help but wonder how this happened. How was it, what was it, about this brand that inspired such loyalty and intense emotion? Some people attributed the response to the absence of trust the new look inspired. Some people believed that the brand's vernacular was as much a part of the ritual of our daily lives as baseball and apple pie. Others talked of the security that the brand evoked that the original design harkened back to safer, more innocent, less turbulent times. Some people worried that the backlash would discourage other marketers from attempting to make revolutionary change to their stalwart established products. And yet another group thought that any juice packaging hysteria was proof once and for all that civilization was indeed doomed. My favorite reaction came from my 21-year-old brother Jake, who likes to drink his O.J. straight from the carton and, for the most part, is loyal to the brands his mother and father and older sister have introduced to him over the years. When the redesigned Tropicana hit the shelves, he called me and asked if I had worked on the new look. He seemed relieved when I told him no, and when I asked why, I expected he would reply that he didn't like it. Instead, he surprised me by stating that some kid in his dorm room was twittering about it and he didn't want anyone talking shit about something his sister had worked on. Yesterday, while shopping for dinner, I saw the original Tropicana package back on the shelves. A part of me felt comforted to see it again, and part of me felt sad. I considered all the effort that had been wasted, and I couldn't help but feel discouraged that my beloved discipline of package design had somehow failed. I purchased the few things I needed and wistfully left the store. As I walked out, I passed a sidewalk garbage can overflowing with pat plastic bottles, old newspapers, and balled-up scraps of tin foil. And there, amidst the trash, poking up through a broken umbrella, a bluish-green half-eaten sandwich, and Wednesday's New York Post, was a dented slightly dirty, empty carton of orange juice. Of course, it was Tropicana. Welcome to Design Matters with Debbie Millman. I am Debbie Millman, and my guest today is Alan Chachanov. Before we get started with our interview, please let me tell you a bit more about him. Alan Chachanov is a partner of CORE77, a New York-based design network serving a global community of designers and design enthusiasts, is the editor-in-chief of CORE77.com, the widely read design website, COREflot.com, design job and portfolio site, and DesignDirectory.com, a design firm database. He teaches in the graduate departments of Pratt Institute and the School of Visual Arts in New York City and writes and lectures widely on the impact of design on contemporary culture. Welcome, Alan. Hey, Debbie. So happy to be here. Oh, so happy to have you here, too. I've wanted you to be on the show for a long time. So I have lots and lots of questions for you today, but I'm going to start sort of old school design matters and ask you something that I don't know about you, uh, which is, and I couldn't find anything about your past beyond your most recent past on the Internet, which I found highly suspect (laughs) given that you are an Internet entrepreneur. Right. So tell me about your very, very first creative memory.
0: Oh, that's a good question. Um, well, um, I would take things apart um, as a as a small kid, and uh, I may not have been so good at putting them back together. I definitely remember uh, getting into trouble taking apart this built-in console stereo that uh, we had. I grew <laughs> up in uh, in Winnipeg, in Canada. I'm sure your parents didn't appreciate that. Yeah, they didn't appreciate that, and there's sort of an infamous story in my in my past too. My father. Uh, and mother getting me an electric guitar to sort of try out to perhaps purchase from someone that they knew, and I had trouble uh, tuning it. It was sort of a, an old thing and all rusted up, so I grabbed a pair of pliers and, and turned the tuning pegs with that and ended up, you know, scratching and denting them, got into a lot of trouble. Of course, uh, they, they ended up having to, was to buy say, it. I to you
2: break it, you buy it. So perhaps <laughs> perhaps not a, a creative
0: memory, but certainly a, sort of a, you know, hands-on making, you know, destructive <laughs> pair of memories there.
2: How old were you at that time?
0: Oh, you know, uh, probably around 12 or 13. And did yeah. you end
2: mm-hmm. up playing the guitar? I
0: did, actually. I, I still do. And uh, Oh, you every did? Every night to my daughter, seven and a half, and, uh, you know, important part of my day.
2: Did you ever so. consider pursuing music as a career?
0: Um, to some degree. I did some playing and singing in, well, uh, in several band. places. Uh, I was in a band and sort of, you know, on my own guitar and microphone, things like that. Do so. you sing? I do.
2: Oh, wow. Yeah. I
0: should have asked you to bring your guitar. <laughs> <laughs>
2: uh-huh. Aha. Yeah. See, now I know why you don't like to have all your past oh, you go, recorded right? on the Internet. Yeah. Uh, so wh- what kind of bands were you in?
0: Oh, just a uh, band as a, you know, early teenager band called Hi- Handle With Care. I didn't think I'd be making them famous on, on Internet radio today. but Handle yeah, With
2: Care. Sure. Anything we can find on iTunes. No,
0: certainly not. Well well, pre-Internet. So. So when you were little, what did you actually think that you wanted to be? Um, you know i i it's an it's an interesting question because i as, as you mentioned I teach in a couple of schools, and so a lot of my students i uh, have graduate students they have an incredible amount of existential anxiety right now uh, both both uh, classes that I teach are halfway through a two year master's program mm-hmm. and so they're really questioning you know what the, what they want to do what they should be doing what they ought to do and and so I, I actually get this question from them. And this was never, like, a big thing in my life. I, I feel like I, I spent a lot of time avoiding um, deciding what I wanted to, to do um, for a living or, or for, uh, for, you know, my livelihood or for my life. And um, I think that's a reason for undergraduate I actually went into philosophy, which is, you know, clearly sort of not a decision of, like, what you want to do with your life. Um, and well,
2: I guess it could be.
0: It could be. Um, but after that, for graduate school, I went into industrial design, which, which also seemed like you could you could be doing anything. You could be designing, you know, cars and furniture and, and medical devices and all sorts of stuff. And that seemed like a great way to not decide as well. So I've been, you know, putting off the decision for, for a long time, um, and so I never I never had like a problem with like not knowing, and, and I just sort of stopped asking myself, you know, quite a, quite a while ago. So you got you know. your
2: bachelor's degree in philosophy. <laughs> Why philosophy?
0: Um, I really loved it. I actually started out in fine arts, um, and I think I lasted about three weeks. Why? And uh, it just it seemed very, very specific, uh, very uh, specialized, you know, for an 18-year-old. And so I backed out of that. I took uh, more of a, you know, general uh, BA, and then took art and design classes, either in school or out of school. I'd always taken art and design classes mm-hmm. all, you know, growing up. And so um, I finished a BA in Toronto. And, um, Then I went to Quebec City for a year, uh, studied French, more art and design classes, went to Montreal for a year, uh, also more classes. Actually, I started, I think, a second B.A. a BFA Mm -hmm. uh, in Montreal and was visiting um, some of the United States and got sort of turned on to graduate schools in design and ended up at Pratt. So so
2: it was uh, an intentional um, course of study in industrial design at that point. You thought you wanted to make things.
0: Uh, At that point, yeah. I mean, again, I, I love working with my hands and I love stuff um and um and so this seemed like again a nice way of putting off choosing exactly what stuff and uh you know the notion of living in new york city was obviously a very exciting idea and um i loved it i loved the program
2: so how long have you been in new
0: york city now um, I guess I moved here in uh, 86, so it's a long time.
2: So mm-hmm. initially, after you graduated from school with your graduate degree, mm-hmm. you then started working in the medical field.
0: Yeah, um, I got this really, really great job um, in Connecticut at a firm called Tanaka Kabeck Design Group, uh cousin of Tanaka and Jeffrey Kabeck, really sort of, you know, taught me everything I know. Um, and um, for my master's thesis, I had worked on a project to design stick-proof hypodermic needles uh, to prevent the transmission of HIV, mm-hmm. uh, which got me into like laboratory blood collection, phlebotomy, pretty you know, hardcore stuff, year and a half of, of research and study and design development, and, and essentially made Jeff and Kuzma hire me after that because they were my off-campus thesis advisors.
2: How did you make them hire you? I just,
0: you know, I was very in- insistent. I didn't have a lot of marketable skills. I had some experience in this field, and, uh, and I just really wanted to be there. I loved the kind of stuff that they were doing, and it was very much, you know, the first year of work was the last year of college uh, for, for that. Um, And so there I got to design an incredible array of things, uh, air and water filtration devices, the first home HIV test kit for Johnson & Johnson, uh, laparoscopic instruments, just really, really great stuff. I had a a hard time with with mass production and and waste, Um, you know, even as a student, and uh, what I loved about their firm is they they didn't work on, a, like, a lot of, you know, dumb stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, what would
2: you consider to be dumb stuff? Well,
0: uh, Tropicana? No. A <laughs> uh, beloved brand. We can, let's, I'd love to return and talk about that for a second. But, we'll um, do that in a little bit. Yeah. I want to know more about you. Um, just, you know, a lot of disposable consumer products and things like that that everybody knows are going to, you know, not last very long. And so finding myself in this field of, of uh, you know, a concentration of medical stuff, I could just sort of, you know, sleep at night. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, not to say that there isn't just an enormous amount of uh, materials and plastic particularly uh, involved in that domain. So um, these are, you know, complex equations as many people have said.
2: Yes. Um, mm-hmm. before, before we continue with your career, I want to go back a few minutes. You were talking about your students and they uh, have been asking you about jobs and what to expect. What What are you telling... Students now, your mm-hmm. students, about the job market. How do you, mm-hmm. how are you able to um, describe what you think they might be expecting out there?
0: Um, I'm, I'm actually super optimistic with them. I mean, you know, job market and economies aside, I cannot imagine a better time for design right now. And there's several, several factors for that. One, we, we just have I- incredibly powerful tools of creation, tools of dissemination. We have the internet, obviously. to to get things around and and to ask people for information, to answer questions about uh, just really anything, materials or processes or manufacturing or use or uh, ethnography, ergonomics, all this stuff. Um, And so we have like this great intersection between these tools of of, of production and, and the tools of dissemination, but we also are living at a time when, and you know, I feel like sort of everyone's always said this, but like You know, we need design so badly right now. Yes. Um, There are just so many seemingly intractable problems, and so that this this sort of crew of designers who are outgoing um, has a new set of of mandates, a new set of imperatives of what they sort of need to do. This marries really well, frankly, with a lot of what comes out of a student's mouth in terms of wanting to create, um, you know, products and services that have more meaning, more resonance, more permanence. Uh, so, in a way, all the stars have aligned as depressing as, you know, you, you could argue it in sort of in a very depressing way, but I think the optimistic view is that we have everything that we need at a time when we need it most. Um, so, to me, that this is really, really hopeful. Also, like, I just, I, like, just totally believe in, in students. Uh, I think that there are teachers to lose. Mm-hmm. Uh, design students will do amazing things, and uh, I never sort of worry about them. So, I have this supreme belief um, uh, in, in that sort of group of, you know, creative people. And, uh, you know, when they get to be professionals, then uh, some of the inevitable, you know, compromises um, start to set in. Hopefully not too many. Hopefully
2: not too many. We yeah. can talk about compromises as well in, in a little bit. Mm. But I guess given that you founded Coraflot and you are, um, I guess, for lack of a better way of putting it, surrounded by job opportunities in part of the work that you do, do you see a, a fundamental difference in the amount of jobs that are out there?
0: Um, well, actually, we've seen a decrease in the amount of jobs that are out there. We've you know, certainly in touch with you know, recruiters and other people in the creative job um, area, um, although we have noticed a, a small <laughs> uptick uh, <laughs> recently, and so you know, I don't know if that signals you know, bottoming out or not. Um, what jobs there are are really great jobs. Mm-hmm. And so, um, I don't think that they're, they're going to disappear. Um, you know, one thing also to add is that we live in a time of sort of, you know, you are your own brand. Mm-hmm. And so the opportunities to create businesses to not actually have to get a job, but to actually create your own job or a way to create and provide, put value into the world, um, is unprecedented. Uh, you really can, you know, start a brand, start a blog. Uh, start engaging with the community in, in sort of the yeah, in which you want to really work, it's just everything. It's, yeah. it's, uh, it, it couldn't be easier in a way. So for those people who have something to say and something to offer, the barriers for entry are, are almost zero. Um, and one of the things that I'm really excited about that is I'm sort of a big believer in uncredential designers. I think that a lot of people have, some, have, have, have quite a bit to give um, who aren't necessarily trained in the disciplines of design and so again coming back uh, once again to the internet you have this platform where all of these people can find a voice can find each other and can find you know clients and sponsors and people who can uh, team up with them to do great things
1: mm-hmm.
2: I had something happen to me today that has never before happened to me mm-hmm. and and just to give you a little bit of backstory before I tell you the actual story I will tell you that I teach a class at the School of Visual Arts essentially about the business of graphic design and how to uh, talk about what you do as a young designer, how to pitch work, how to present yourself, and so forth. One of the things that I tell my, my students over and over and over again is that you can't wait for something to happen to you. Mm-hmm. You can't wait for an opportunity to come your way. You have to actively go out and look for those things. Yeah. And that might also include making things like cold calls and they're always terrified by this they're terrified about speaking about Mm -hmm. themselves they're terrified about Mm -hmm. making calls Mm -hmm. so today here I am at my desk preparing for the show my phone rings I pick it up and it's a young woman from Pittsburgh cold calling me (laughs) a student from Pittsburgh cold calling me asking me if there are any jobs out there Mm -hmm. here at Sterling that I could help her get and unfortunately at the moment there aren't any Mm -hmm.
0: Uh, It sounds like a euphemism, but maybe true here.
2: But I was so Mm -hmm. shocked at the idea Mm -hmm. of somebody doing that. Mm -hmm. And she said that I, so of course I had to ask her about it. You know, Uh why are you you cold calling? Is this part of a much bigger campaign? And she said that she's had a very hard time finding any opportunities. Mm -hmm. So she decided that she was going to decide what opportunity she wanted to go after. And And she would try to make those things happen. So, uh, you know, the very first job that comes Mm -hmm. along, you know, I have to give her.
0: For sure. Absolutely. Uh, I don't have a lot of... Canned lectures that I do as a as a teacher, but I do have a couple, and one of them actually I just gave a couple of weeks ago, which is how to um, how to make these cold calls and sort of oh, ma- magic questions good. to ask to ask these people uh, when you when you have no business asking them anything. And so one of them is you know what are the biggest issues going on in your industry right now? What are the periodicals that re- that people in your field read? Mm-hmm. Uh, who are the biggest players and what do they fight about? What keeps you up at night? So I give them sort of this you know. Magic list of questions, and of course, after three or four phone calls, it's easier for them. They become you know a little bit more conversant. Um, but your situation, I think, is is really wonderful, and and she's obviously, you know, she's persuaded you so that you're actually going to absolutely look, look for something. My students ask me about this kind of stuff all the time. You know, who should I work for? Should it be a small consultancy, a large consultancy, an in-house design firm? And I, you know, and I said. You know, you have one job. Your job is to find, like, you know, the most amazing people doing the most amazing things and, and make them hire you. Right. You know, harking back to my reference to Dr. Capek. Yes, Kapek, yes you know. you'll
2: have to come and guest lecture for my students as <laughs> so well. Love to. But you were mm-hmm. talking about creating your own job, and clearly you are a walking billboard for someone who is an mm-hmm. entrepreneur who has created his own job, who's really created a career, uh, and, and forged a path for, for many with what you've done. So tell me a little bit about how you went from working, creating industrial design in the medical field mm-hmm. to creating Core 77. Well,
0: Core 77 was founded by my, my two partners, Stu Constantine and Eric Ludlam, uh, when they were master students in 1995. All the credit goes to them. Um, they did it as a, as a project. They wanted to make a, they wanted to make internet buttons, essentially. An interactive, you know, website. It was 1995. The World Wide Web was two two years old, Um, and they thought that they might do something for uh, industrial design students. There was a handbook for industrial design students that they used as source material. Uh, They could type in. There were links to other schools and, you know, tips and tricks on model making and you know where the art and design stores were, and uh, and they, you know, put it on the internet and people started linking back to them and they linked to them and. It was Uh, became like this thing, yeah, yeah. It was very, very innocent. (laughs) And so uh, I met Stu and Eric um, when I came back. I had graduated several years earlier. When I was coming back to teach, actually, when I first started teaching at Pratt, they were leaving as students. And uh, this website, Core Seventy Seven, seemed to be a very interesting thing, and the internet, you know, sort of intrigued and mystified, uh, you know, the powers that be. And so uh, Pratt decided to incubate them, give them an office uh, in the engineering building. Uh, and at the time, they actually designed the first Pratt.edu website, which I always tease them about because you know the only the latest wholesale redesign uh, from a couple of years ago was done by Pentagram. So I tease them that Pratt literally had to hire Pentagram to like beat their design from from 1995 or 1996. Um, and so they were in this building, and uh, everyone would hang out in their office, in the course 77 office. And in those days, I was teaching a full day, and so I would go and. Uh, hang out there at lunch and like learn a little HTML, and I wrote some product reviews for them. And the thing just sort of grew and grew and grew. Um, but it was a hobby. they were making money. There was no commerce on the internet, as you'll recall, and they were making money like everyone was designing websites for other people right And so um, uh, ultimately, Stu and Eric um, got other other jobs, um, but kept the 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 site going. Um I started doing a bunch of consulting work for Herman Miller that involves some electronic tools ultimately and um, and asked Eric if he wanted to to help me out, and that that stuff did very well. And then um, business picked up, the sites picked up, and then uh, ultimately Stu and Eric and I formed a new partnership. And then things just really sort of um, exploded. The internet, frankly, exploded, and, and and I think a consciousness of design, the design community, really really increased. Um, and so it's been uh, it's been a pretty you know wild ride um, since those days. Uh, you know Stu and Eric always joke that. Never in their wildest dreams could they imagine that back in 1995 that this would actually be their, you know, careers and livelihoods. So
2: the three Mm -hmm. of you are still working together and doing this all together. Uh Mm -hmm. And are you a partner now as well?
0: Yes. yes. Oh, good, good, good.
2: (laughs) Um, We have two callers lined up for you. So we have the first, uh, Gregory from New Jersey. Gregory, thank you for calling. Design Matters.
1: Hi, Debbie. I missed you these last few weeks. <laughs> I missed you too. Um, hi, Alan. Hey, how are you doing? Good. Um, I I have a question. It's kind of twofold. Um, since you are a teacher and you you have students, um, have you well? First of all, have you have you had some of the same students uh, for a few years? Have you have you kept in contact with somebody you might have had a few years ago but hasn't finished school yet?
0: Um, I'm not certain I'm I'm clear on the question. In other words,
1: have you taught um, the same student over a period of a few years? Have you seen those students, or it's just one class? Uh,
0: No, typically I'll teach like a a year. Um, I used to teach sophomore studio undergraduate, and that was really an amazing thing, because you'd you'd get these students as they came in as, you know, 19-year-olds, and, and then see them leave at the end, and uh, there's incredible, you know, changes that happen between you know 19 and 22 years old. Well, it's certainly, one of the great gratifications of, of being a teacher is seeing students, you know, at the beginning and then at the end. Um, I have the great fortune of, of keeping in touch with you know several students over the years. It's been a lot so, of years too.
1: So seeing your students now, um, have you have you seen any kind of attitude change as they've watched sort of the global economic disaster? Um, and how that's going to affect their future?
0: Um, I'm not sure that it's exactly uh, sunk in quite yet. Um, <laughs> as I, Well, probably for me and for them. Um, the, uh, the current students are just so, you know, their attention is so eclipsed by um, what am I going to do next? Mm-hmm. And all they hear, you know, uh, in the news, if they can find a moment to, to register the news, is, is how bad things are. Again, giving greater urgency to this notion that you have to sort of go out and make something of value right. yourself. Um, in terms of older students who have graduated, still are in touch. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of them sort of will, will go in and out of jobs that they, they either find gratifying and stick around, or very not gratifying and, and leave very quickly. Um, you know, people love to complain, and they certainly love to complain to old teachers. <laughs> um, so you know, it might be a little skewed that way. The, the other thing that was brought to my attention is that also. Older students might be a little bit embarrassed about what, what they're doing now so that I, I may not be getting the, the full account of, of exactly what they're doing. They may be hiding, hiding the, the tough stuff. That's
1: very interesting. Now, how do the, you see this sort of global economic disaster, how do you see it affect a design and design trend?
0: Oh, well, I'm not sure. I was joking with John Thackeray last week, that as soon as the Dow gets back to 8,500, it's going to be, you know, <laughs> back to business. Back, you know.
1: But do you think so. it will change just sort of people's approach to design or their rethinking because – I. I think with all of like the Ponzi schemes and just mm. such a huge amount of mistrust in the world, sure, I mean, sure. do you think that's going to change people's core values and thereby sort of have a, an effect and an impact uh, on how they approach design?
0: Well, I hope so. Uh, you know, although you know, you look at expensive gas. I mean, how many months did that, that last? That people are going to stop buying big cars and SUVs and it's right. remake. You know, the way that you know we weave our social fabric and. Yeah, I, I'm, just, I'm just not, down, not sure. Way, yeah, sales so, are back up. So, so there you go. You know, people have a, a short memory and a short attention span. Sadly, uh, okay. you know, I just I know that the consciousness in the design community um, is ex- exceptionally strong. Uh, I'm in the board of something called the Designers Accord, which is a coalition of of designers and educators and business people and manufacturers, really pledged towards sustainable practice, and so. Um, that initiative is all about trying to um, get sort of the, the prime movers, the first movers of the creation of, of uh, goods and services, to uh, to be better, to behave themselves, to, to talk to you know each and every client about issues of sustainability, to share their best practices and, and maybe even some horror stories with each other, so that we can all do better as sort of the creators of this stuff. That said, you know, similar to architecture, we know that a lot of the stuff, certainly most of the stuff that makes it into our world is, is you, know, like, you, know, you know, like there wouldn't be an architect involved. You know, in a lot of architecture, there would be developers, you know, principally. Same thing in, in design, that there may not necessarily be a, an industrial designer involved in products versus, you know, a manufacturer or, or simply a factory.
1: Right. I mean, it goes back to sort of that whole Tropicana thing where um, it, it's such a it's such a, a bellwether indicator of how strongly people really do feel and how much they need that comfort and that trust. And mm-hmm. so um, I, I think that's been such a perfect example of what not to do, I, not as designers but as corporations when they go to redesign or think about it really what never to do again.
0: Yeah, well, maybe, Debbie, you want to chime in here. I mean, to me, like, there are some, some things that maybe you know, hands off. Perhaps the lesson here is that there's just there, there doesn't need to be this constant imperative to, like, crank out new stuff. Of right, course, if you, exactly. you know, if you talk to any economist, of course there's a constant imperative to crank out stuff. That's how the world goes right, around. And, so and there's a real yeah. tension here. Mm-hmm.
2: Well, thank you for calling, Gregory. Thank you. Thanks. Um, I want to get back to uh, what is called planned obsolescence Mm. and and being forced to crank new things out, but we do have another caller on the line, and I don't want to keep her waiting anymore. Nicole from New York City, thank you for calling Design Matters. Hi, Debbie. How are you? Good, thank you. Hi, Alan. Hi, Nicole. I have a pretty easy question, I think. (laughs) Um, I'm just curious, how do you decide which content to include on Core 77? Is it stuff that you have firsthand experience using, or Mm. is it things that you, you know, love or I'm just curious what your approach
0: is. Uh well actually it's a great question and it comes up um all the time you know from, from people like you and also internally. Um and and often we it starts to resonate through the comments. You know, we'll we'll blog something that we think is really, you know, dumb and amazing and wonderful, let's say. Right. Um uh, you need an example here. Well, this is from a few years ago, but, you know, those CD cases, the plastic CD cases with the spindle down them. Unfortunately. We, yeah, <laughs> yeah, there you go. And so, you know, somebody had made a a, a bagel carrier out of this. <laughs> um, so, you know, pretty ingenious. I think I, I think we even picked it up from, from another site. And, and so people would go crazy on this kind of thing um, and email us saying, I can't believe, you know, Core 77, uh, you know, is endorsing this product. You know, this is more solid waste. What are you doing? Um, or like an electric, you know, toilet paper dispenser that somebody, like you know, built um, this motorized thing, and, and they'll 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 just really give us a hard time. And I think that uh, you know we put things on the on the blog because we think that they're like remarkable in the true sense of like remarking on them. Um, stuff doesn't make it on there because we endorse it or think it's necessarily good. Of course, th- things that we think are bad, we're we're not going to sort of throw any pixels at. Right. Um, I mean, unless we really want to critique something and talk about how bad or destructive or, you know, sort of depleting something is. Um, but we like the thing to be a bit of a grab bag. Um, there are a lot of design sites out there, as, as you know, that have, you know, sort of beautiful after gorgeous after beautiful after gorgeous <laughs> yeah. um, product. And we don't ignore that stuff by any means. But I think that we like it to be a little bit of a free-for-all of, uh, you know, again, services and products and, and videos and, you know, some crazy stuff, too. Uh, so ha- it makes us happy, frankly.
2: Okay. Is there like um, any specific, is there one place that you get your inspiration from or is it just from like everyday sort of interaction?
0: Um, yeah, a little bit of both, I would say. You know, we do a lot of hunting around. People obviously uh, send us a lot of stuff. You know, would you, uh, you know, help get the word out about my project? Um, or I know this thing is going on over here and I would love to share it with the Course 77 audience. So, you know, largely a combination of those two things. We have a lot of opinion pieces in the form of articles and think pieces, and obviously those are sort of, you know, original content from, from somebody, um, although very, very often they'll, they'll be, you know, newsier reference uh, things happening in culture.
2: Okay, well, thanks a lot. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you for calling, Nicole. So let's go back to what we were talking about, Mm -hmm. the idea of planned obsolescence. Mm -hmm. And for our listeners that might not know exactly what that is, one need only look to the fashion industry to see planned obsolescence in its full regalia. Mm -hmm. Every season, you're expected to participate in buying the new fashions, whether it be skirt lengths or shoes or heels or the it bag or the it haircut or whatever it is that makes you feel like an it. Um... That's also very apparent in technology, somewhat more forgivable only in that chances are uh, some of that obsolescence is because of innovation. Uh, But how, as designers, should we be helping navigate the consumer through this planned obsolescence.
0: Yeah, this is this seems to be, you know, really a critical question at this juncture, and I think that you touch on really the two factors. One is is a fashion question, is that it seems, you know, human nature, you know, we love things that are novel. We love things that are new. Um, and that this idea of, of a new skin to something, mm-hmm. um, it, it becomes very important in, in sort of one of the, the movers of industrial design. In fact, there's a derogatory term um, for uh, what, what the industry calls styling, mm-hmm. which is called a skin job, it's like, oh, what are you working on? It's like, oh, a new MP3 player, really? And they're like, yeah, it's just a skin job. So essentially, there's no innovation in terms of its its functionality or its uh, ergonomics or its experience or you know, sort of you know, user interface. Um, it's a, it just it's about the looks of the thing. And so I think that uh, recognizing the fact that that's probably not going to go away. Um, creates sort of a new kind of interesting place for creating skins of things, skins of things that have that are low impact. And so I think that that's that's one way to sort of directly address the thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, perhaps the harder one of of your sort of to to you know paths there is this idea is that technology does move, and that um, this year's laptop. Um, well, you could argue against this, I suppose, but the point I was going to make is that. This year's laptop actually is better than the laptop right. from two years ago. Mm-hmm. The counter argument is that, you know, you know, they were both plenty powerful, and anything you need to do on a laptop, you know, last year's is, is just fine. Um, but, you know, people like things that are, you know, zippier and brighter and longer battery life and some of these uh, sort of, you know, boring criteria that actually aren't so boring when it's your laptop and you're, you're working on it all day. So the idea of, of, of sort of embodying, of actualizing this new technology um, you know, in the case of a laptop, let's say every 18 months, um, is a reality um, to to grapple with, and so I think you know designers have a few um, tools, a few tricks up their up their sleeve. Uh, one of them is to make things uh, designed for disassembly, and so that we can actually take these apart, uh, these these products apart, and and uh, and reclaim the materials. Um, uh, John Thacker, to reference once again, uh, had mentioned. Um, the statistic he's written about that a a laptop um, takes 4,000 times its weight uh, on your lap uh, to manufacture it. It's just an incredible amount of embodied energy or embodied material energy um, that makes the thing. And and so to sort of chuck it or trade it in every 18 months seems sort of, you know, somehow quite obscene. Um, In any event, so design for disassembly uh, and, um, you know, one of the holy grails a lot of students will come up with, um, in particular, is, is you know computers that will have you know motherboard that you can swap out. So there'll be this sort of this one the beating heart of the thing mm-hmm. um, that can swap out. And, and this has been tried many times. And, and what we can see in the marketplace is, is manufacturers are unwilling to do this, or there just there isn't a, a business case for it. Um, and then. Um, Something that I'm particularly interested in is just this idea of reuse. Mm-hmm. That the laptop may not be, you know, speedy enough for you or fashionable enough for you, um, but that it may be plenty fashionable enough for all sorts of people um, around the world. And so working on redistribution systems is a fascinating design problem um, that lots of people are, are, are looking at um, that I think, again, is, um, is you know, is, is something hopeful there.
2: Now, I, I read re- a recent interview uh, that you did with Steve Heller on the AIGA Voice website, mm-hmm. and he was uh, talking to you about how you work with your students to address some of these issues. And uh, I understand now that you require your students to answer why at nearly every stage of the design process, and you urge them to avoid indulging in the typical trappings of consumer culture.
0: No, no. My own words again. <laughs> So
2: um, so a couple of questions here. What would you consider to be the trappings of consumer culture, and how do you urge them to avoid indulging in these trappings? And Are they willingly going along with, with that, or are they fighting you for with that? Um, Three questions there. Sorry about uh, that.
0: No, that's okay. Uh, I think it's, they're actually pretty easy to answer. I, you know, the, the students really answer it themselves. You know, one could argue that they come in, you know, with the switch off maybe, uh, but graduate students, the switch is, you know, almost on. Um, but once, once you turn the switch on, you sensitize them to sort of the consequences of, of what they're doing. Um, you know, Paul Hawkins talks about, like, you know, once you see, you can't unsee. Mm-hmm. And so there's very, very little argument. Um, I was at a, a design get-together recently, and somebody had stood up and said, you know, we need experts to show us the way, and I just, I kind of lost it. And I said, you know, we don't need experts. I mean, of course, we do need some experts. But not for what he was talking about, and and I just sort of you know look, looked the group looked at the group and said you know you know when you're making garbage, so you don't need an expert to tell you when you're making garbage. You know, um, and uh, if you're clever enough to you know be in this business where people are hiring you um, because you have something that they don't have, you're let's say a design consultant, then you need to be clever enough um, to do it uh, in a way that is like minimum impact. Uh, in fact, it's not even minimum impact, you know, you want to go even past the zero point. You want to be creating more value, you want to find. You want to leave things better than you found them. Uh, this debate about, you know, cradle to cradle and, and less bad isn't good enough. Mm-hmm. You know, is, do, we, do we consider less bad good enough in any other parts of our lives? No. So why do we think that that's sort of, you know, a high enough bar for design practice? So that ideally, if you're really, really good at design, you're actually creating worth, you're creating value. Um, and, uh, you know, to be kind of brutal about it, if you're not that good, you kind of got to get out of the business because the consequences of mass production are really extreme. I don't think any of us need to sort of argue that. Right. Um, And so you got to be really, really good at it. Uh, I think we've probably gone through this period where um, maybe we were a little bit spoiled and that we were running around mass producing and that there were no sort of balances. There were no, you know, uh, measures, checks, tests, things like life cycle analysis going on. Uh, and now we are appreciating the the impacts, the consequences of that sort of rampant mass production. And it's not just in product design. Um, and time to sort of reassess exactly what is it that we're sort of pumping out there. and uh, And this goes for, I think, everything, communication, advertising, graphic design campaigns, just... All of it, uh, you know, designers across the border in the persuasion business, one could argue. And so we want to ask ourselves, what are we trying to persuade people to do uh, and and to, to what end? Again, besides, you know, this sort of aforementioned, you know, money makes the world go round. Unless we're moving money, you know, the economy comes to a halt. Mm-hmm. Um, but, okay, so while we're moving money, can we move money and create value uh, in ways that aren't typically measured, the you know, sort of exogenous factors, or what people, economists would call exogenous factors. That well, tell me more about sort what of ex- un- I'm unfamiliar with. That
2: unmeasured, yeah, um, exogenous exogenous yeah. factors. That's a big word. It's a good word. Yeah. yeah, it's
0: a great word. You know, things like um, you know labor practices, mm-hmm. for instance, toxicity. Um, you know, or, or well, back to the labor practices, whether the people putting your MP3s together um, are allowed to go to the bathroom. Or whether they're allowed to talk, or whether they're allowed to laugh. Uh, talking and laughing, you know, n- you know, typically not so not so permitted. No. Um, and um, and child labor, uh, toxicity. Of course, toxicity of the product itself. When when you're getting it, the toxicity of what the product's done in terms of how it's getting to you, being shipped. You know all over back across the planet two or three times getting manufactured and, and, and assembled. So miles to delivery the, kind of thing. Sure, the the mining of the raw materials that go into the thing. It hasn't even gotten to your hands yet, right? Never mind sort of the, the, the warehousing and inventory, managing the cold chain, if it's, let's say, something that needs to be kept uh, kept cold, you know, fruits and vegetables. You mentioned, uh, you talked about uh, grocery stores in, in your monologue, which I really loved. and um, I, I've read a few different statistics, but... The one that sticks in my head is that uh, 85, uh, sorry, so 15% of what is in the supermarket is made out of food. Mm. Yeah. And the rest of it is, you know, packaging and fixtures and, you know, just these, these cold, you know, refrigerator coolers just like pumping out. They don't even have the plastic drapes in front of them or just like pumping out refrigeration just, you know, to basically cool packaging mm-hmm. and a tiny little bit of... Food in there—it's just sort of you know madness if you think too much about it.
2: Well, it's very interesting. Last week I saw Joshua Inesco—I don't know if you know the
0: name—speak
2: at the Fuse Conference, mm-hmm. and he was—he's—he uh, looks like he's about 12. I guess he's really about 30. Uh, Joshua Inesco, O N Y S K O. And he is the founder of a company called Pengia Organics. Mm. You might have heard of Pengia yeah. Organics. So his entire speech was about what we can do even if we don't feel like we have power. Mm-hmm. And it was fascinating. He talked about how we can no longer blame corporations for what they're doing, that we as consumers are, if we are still buying what they're making, if we don't believe in what they're doing or mm-hmm. we don't believe in their practices, that we only have ourselves to blame yeah. if they continue to do it because we continue to buy it. Yeah. The fastest way to get a corporation to stop doing something that we don't believe is right is to stop buying their products. And rather than boycotting, he calls it bycotting. So mm-hmm. if you buy somebody else's That's products right. mm-hmm. that is doing, is mm-hmm. doing good with the, with the work that they are, or the products that they are producing, that very quickly, when that money goes somewhere else, Consumer uh, corporations will sit up and take mm-hmm. notice. So power that, of the purse. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's beautiful. Power of the mm-hmm. purse. Um, so we have another caller. Oh. Uh, before I ask him my next question, let's go to the next caller, Isabel from New York. Thank you for calling. Design Matters. Hi, Debbie. Hi, Alan. Hey, how are you doing? I'm great. Um, when Debbie was reading your bio, uh, it, it was noteworthy to hear that you hold a few. You new, hold new numerous design and utility patents, and mm-hmm. it's so funny because just yesterday I was reading that. The U.S. is no longer the leader in patent applications, Mm. but actually China is. Mm -hmm. And I'm just curious, by and large,
1: do you think Americans have hit a wall when it comes to ingenuity and design? Do you think we've just gotten complacent?
0: No, I I don't. Um, I'm not really sure how to react to that. Uh, I don't know if that's uh, statistics or how much it costs to actually file a patent. I think probably the factors involved in in that statistic may be sort of more slippery uh, than it sort of simply being an indication of, you know, sort of the collective ingenuity of America. So I I, I would be suspect about, I'm not suspecting the statistic, I would just be suspect about the causes, the underlying causes. Um, You know, the ingenuity is sort of, you know, that's a renewable renewable resource. And, uh, uh, you know, I, I actually think it's limitless, frankly. Mm-hmm. Well, they do say necessity
2: is the mother of invention. Mm-hmm. And now that we're in a full-on recession, do you anticipate that Americans are going to find um, new and curious ways to solve design dilemmas and so on?
0: I do. And, and I don't want to downplay some of the, the complexities and difficulties of some of the problems that we're facing. Um, but although, you know, I'm uh, often, you know, critical of. of some of the design designers and design industries. I'm also, uh, uh, you know, its biggest uh, cheerleader. I, I just believe supremely in the power of, of design and uh, and the ability for for people to, you know, sort of put their heads together and and come up with great solutions. You know, kind of innocent in that way.
2: Thank you for calling, Isabel. Sure. Thank you, Alan. Thank you, Debbie. Bye. Okay. I'd like to talk a little bit about the presentation you recently made at Compost Modern mm-hmm. in San Francisco. Uh, two different parts of uh, the presentation I want to talk about. One was your 10 Sustainable Steps. And I don't want to go through all 10 of them, unfortunately, uh, because we don't have the time. But I also want to talk about the case study that you showed uh, and talking about redesigning something that people really need that changes their lives, and that's the project that you did with your students for a prosthetic arm. Right. So can you talk a little bit about how you did this, how you came up with the idea, and what the eventual
0: outcome was? Sure, sure. And actually, I think there's a video up at the Compost Modern site that just went up. and people can find that at compostmodern.com, uh, is that I think correct? so, yeah. Okay. And uh, word.org, I'm sorry, I don't know one of the okay. two. William, can you look that up? <laughs> sure, I'll look it up <laughs> while you're talking. Um, well, you know, this uh, this start. I'm always on the lookout for, for some juicy uh, design problems for upcoming students. It was, it was really last May I was participating in a Philip Johnson Glasshouse House conversation uh, organized by uh, Dorothy Dunn, and uh, one of the other people um, in that conversation uh, was Frank Wilson who, who wrote a, a really great book called The Hand um, and who had told me about a, a project he was working on. Uh, it was a project through DARPA um, to redesign a prosthetic uh, limb and uh, really, you know, f- for the military. And it was halfway through. as a four-year project. Uh, it's $50 million, $80 million, different numbers, actually. And, big um, numbers. Big numbers, um, although for the military maybe not so big. And uh, they'd been working with uh, Dean Kamen, and, and Frank had been involved in this project and was, was a little bit frustrated about it, a little bit sort of skeptical about, like, how much of it, it was going to sort of find its way into the real world. And, uh, you know, I like impossible problems. And I said, well, this is really interesting. Uh, he said, well, it's actually more interesting because I'm, I'm working with um, a guy, Elliot Washer, who is one of the founders of Big Picture Schools, which is a, a group of charter schools. Uh, across the United States and Canada, and they were looking for, uh, as teachers always are, of, uh, new math and science curriculum ideas, and um, and so I said, well, maybe I should do this with my graduate students. He said, oh, well, what graduate students in industrial design? And I said, no, I actually, I have these students um, at the uh, School of Visual Arts in the Designers Author Program, um, run by uh, Lita Tallarico and Stephen Heller, and um, they're a bunch of graphic designers essentially. But it's a very entrepreneurial program, and it's interdisciplinary. And I said, and frankly, if I gave sort of the prosthetic arm to a bunch of graphic designers, they would be sort of just as sort of you know ill-equipped to to design a new new prosthetic arm as a bunch of high school students would be. And it might be a great um, test. Um, you know, sort of, I'm sure they'll do some interesting things. They'll give you a, a disc, and, and you can you know send it to DARPA, or Johns Hopkins, or or uh, Elliot Washer, whoever you want. We'll just sort of you know give it away. And he said, well, that's great. Let me let me talk to those those people concerned and get back to you on it. Uh, sort of got indignant, we were drinking some wine, I, I think I tell the story on the video that, uh, I said, no, I'm, I'm giving this problem, I don't need their, <laughs> their permission, maybe a little too much wine. And, um, and so we were, uh, you know, was sort of, the die was cast at that point, I was committed to giving the problem. And so uh, this was a fascinating problem to give to a bunch of, as I say, graphic or communication design students. Uh, it would be a tough problem, frankly, for anyone. And so we had a lot of uh, very working around the edges approaches uh, to the problem. Uh, very, very wonderful. And sometimes I actually wonder whether it was better to give this problem to people who weren't technically industrial designers. Um, we had uh, some incredible guests, John Cunningholm, uh, who lost his arm in Haditha, a uh, uh, retired marine captain, um, who you've probably seen, many people have seen on the news and in magazines and newspapers. Amy Mullins, who a lot of people are familiar with, um, actually came to the, to the class twice and really, she has a very, very abstract uh, notion of, of, of prosthetics and, and uh, uh, you, know, to, you know, not considering herself, um, you know, disabled or handicapped and uh, really helped unleash the students' creativity in coming up with solutions for this.
2: She is the, uh, she was one of the participants in Matthew Barney's *Cremaster* series, yep. correct? Yes. Yes, so mm-hmm. for any of our listeners that might have seen that. Yeah.
0: And so uh, it was really amazing what the students did, and they did it in probably ten weeks. And um, and uh, actually, uh, one of the students is putting together a website as we speak, and so hopefully this stuff um, uh, will will get out there. And so I was really really proud at the Compost Modern to uh, to show that work. I think that sort of a lot of a lot of us are kind of sick of the oh come on you guys kinds of um, presentations. Um, what do you which, mean by which that? Well, you know, I've been guilty of it myself. Where you go in and show a bunch of you know images and statistics about how bad things are and how designers have to clean up their act. Um, And I find that, um, uh, again, at design conferences and and in, you know, articles and journals, I think a lot of people are really just much more interested now in in sort of applied techniques, like how are we going to do better, show us some examples of how people um, did better. And so I use this as an opportunity to talk about sustainable design practice through this lens of, of, uh, of the Prosthetic Arm Project.
2: Do you think that a new prosthetic arm will be able to come from this work?
0: Um, no, I mean, I, th- I think that there are lots of interesting projects that have come from this work, and certainly a lot of discursive design. Mm-hmm. design. What do you mean by discursive design? Um, well, um, discursive design is is, uh, is something I'm actually very, very interested in. This is design that is intended to provoke or to create discussion, mm-hmm. um, as opposed to um, what... Bruce Tharp or Stephanie Munson out of the uh, University of Chicago would call, you know, uh, commercial design, responsible design, experimental design, they have, mm-hmm. you know, sort of a fourth, um, uh, uh, really a- epitomized by um, Dunn & Raby's work uh, in, in London at the Royal College of Art, um, where these artifacts aren't really designed to be manufactured, distributed, purchased, and used, and, and discarded, of course, um, but they're, they're meant to provoke. And so a lot of the stuff that came out of this project um, would fall into that area. And, you know, part of me actually feels that that kind of design has more power, frankly, because uh, it, get pick- it gets picked up by the media and, and, and it really sort of, like good art, it can it can make you think differently, it can make you see the world differently. Um, there, there was one example, Mariana Choles, um, tubers and Zots arm. There's this popular sort of design toy called Tubers and Zots, which mm-hmm. is made up of these sort of foam tubes with wires in them, so that they hold their shape. And so she she basically re you know gave them a new brand called Tubers and Zots Interactive Arms, and formed these Tubers and Zots into an arm-shaped uh, you know product, and sort of did the hang tag and the barcode. It was sort of very real and convincing. And so the scenario I had in my head is that you know you'd go into the into the store and and, you know, any kid would sort of pick this up and say, you know, mommy, mommy, I want the tubers and zots arm. <laughs> and, the, and the sales, you know, person would come up and say, oh, I, I'm sorry, this isn't for your kid. Your kid has, has two arms. So sorry, it's not for them. And, I, you know, in sort of this fascinating way would flip the privilege that this is a product for a kid who had one arm. Um, and, and sort of a, a side bonus of this is that one of the real challenges in, in, in prosthetics and what a lot of uh, the time that, that a prosthetist takes um, in caring uh, for a patient is, is the fit um, between the stump and the prosthetic and so the tubers and zots arm you basically just take this thing I'm sort of waving my arms around here Debbie no one can see so imagine you sort of like wrap it around uh, sort of any old you know stump and right and 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 it holds on Right. Sort of and, solves it, this, and I, this I problem. saw that actually yeah. and
2: she made a, a fork and a spoon out. well there.
0: and like in sort of this fighting you know kids like fighting you know swords type right of thing. yeah it's and so you know the, there's a, it's not going to do a lot of mechanical work, and it's certainly not for everybody, but in terms of um, creating a product that was actually desirable for people who had two arms and, and sort of who couldn't have it, or, you know, and in terms of creating something very, very appropriate for children, and perhaps most importantly, creating something that didn't manufacture anything new in the world. Tubers and Zots exist. They're already manufactured. People are already making them. All she's done is she's just like rebranded it. She's Mm -hmm. given them, you know, potentially a new revenue stream and said, you're already making this stuff. We're just going to call it something else and we're going to address it to a different kind of audience. No one needs to do anything different. Uh, You know, it's a logo on a website. And so that kind of, you know, design solution, I think, is really, really great, wonderfully sustainable. That
2: is such an incredibly inspiring story. And I believe that people can see... The examples of the spoon and the fork and mm-hmm. so forth on Course seventy-seven. I believe that that's where I saw it. Is that correct?
0: Um, we have we have blogged a little bit. Again, um, I'm waiting for this site to be completed so that we can put you know sort of a, a whole archive and and uh, maybe I can write a little sort of introduction with some reflections of of the project. Um, but it was certainly something that was very gratifying um, for me. I think that the students. You know, we're very proud of themselves of what they were able to come up with. Again, you know, as principally graphic designers, I think that they were, you know, frankly stunned at how much they could do. And when Amy Mullins came back the second time to look at the work at the end of the semester, she uh, had a, an aside to me and said, "You know, there's more sort of design thinking, creative thinking around prosthetics in this room in 10 weeks than there's been in 100 years." It's quite a compliment for somebody. Yes. Uh, a compliment to the students from from somebody like that um that's it was, amazing it was really really uh it was wonderful.
2: Well, we are nearing the very end of our show. I want to let our listeners know that they can go to compostmodern.org or .com, and you will get to the right address. And if you want to see more of Alan's work, his writing, course77.com. My last question for you, Alan, is in our research we found a quote that you are terrified of the Internet. Uh, yeah. And given that you <laughs> do so much of your work online, I was wondering why are you so terrified of the Internet?
0: Yeah, I'm wondering if it's time to sort of give that up. I, I feel certainly, you know, most people think that it's this very temporal or temporary ephemeral medium that it sort of comes and goes. And mm-hmm. and I think deep down I really understand or, or I believe, oh, I don't think erroneously, but I believe that it is the most permanent mm. creation um, in human history. Google has and that very everything good memory. that's in there. <laughs> um, so I'm very pleased that you weren't actually able to find a lot of earlier uh, bio on me. I don't, I don't, Sort of, you know, diligently keep the stuff off there, but I don't have like, you know, a site with my domain and with my name as its domain and sort of everything I've, I, I've done. Um, I marvel at people who do that stuff, um, but you know, I, I probably need to face facts here and, and, and the reality of what's coming up. And I suppose if you know you want to share some of the things that you're excited about, and, and again, you know, as a as a you know a, a partner of Course 77 and as a teacher of design. I want to get help get the good stuff out there, um, I should probably, uh, you know, put it on the Internet.
2: Well, thank you, Alan. It's been an honor to have you on the show Thanks today. Thanks so much. I'm thrilled to be here. Thank you. I'd also like to thank the staff and my partners at Sterling Brands, especially Lisa Grant and Jen Simon, my chief researcher. Joining me next week for our 99th broadcast is film director Gary Hustwit. So more talk about stuff. Thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I am Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you next week.
1: Voice America Business would like to thank you for tuning in for Design Matters with Debbie Millman. Be sure to listen every Friday at 12 Pacific Standard Time for another exciting hour of Design Matters, right here on The Bottom Line in Business Talk, Voice America Business.
2: Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com.